0: The Ordo Salutis issue, as I was saying, brethren, uh, is is important because uh, we deal with uh, we deal with the issues of um, there are some issues that we get into concerning repentance and faith and regeneration and the order in which those things occur, and that's why this this becomes important. Uh, we have noted, I think we closed off noting here uh, the other morning Robert Raymond's list, uh, which in if, and, he, and he lists in this order effectual calling, regeneration, repentance unto life and faith in Jesus Christ, justification, definitive sanctification, adoption, glorification. Now, watch something about that, just because this is the subject of our discussion. Notice that after calling, and conviction is another very good word for calling, but right after that, he places regeneration before repentance and faith. He puts repentance and faith as synonyms. Do I need to make that a little bigger, Nick? I see you I see you straining at that. Uh, that might be, I might not be go. Let's see. Better drop at one, I? Okay, that's, I think about the best I can do here. But uh, notice that he puts regeneration before repentance and faith. I like the fact that he puts repentance and faith together. I believe they are two sides of the same coin, but to put regeneration ahead of them is the place where we will we will stand on the sidelines and watch a battle. Okay, Uh, then this is my my friend Warren Van Hetel, who was several things. He was he was my uh, he was a Hebrew professor i had him for one systematic theology course i had him for a biblical theology course and then over the years he for all practical purposes became mentor and was a good friend went to heaven the age of 87 just uh, about a year ago so But Van Hetlo has this extended citation that I thought worthy here. God has only one provision for the salvation of mankind, unchanged through all dispensations. No one was ever saved except by the love instigated grace of God, as provided by the shed blood of the perfect Lamb of God, as received by personal faith, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. So Van Hetlo. Uh, starts out with the fact that God has to take the initiative in salvation, and then he works us through those issues. Aspects and accompaniments of salvation are greater for the church dispensation, and some seem to be exclusive for the church age. Convicting work of the Holy Spirit is more clear following Calvary. The Holy Spirit permanently indwells all believers and only believers. Scripture gives no hint of spirit baptism in the millennium. And dispensational accompaniments, spirit, baptism, permanent and dwelling union in Christ are also simultaneous with salvation, not logical or chronological. Now, let me talk with you about these problems with the Ordo Salutis. These are problems or are issues of debate among theologians in the Reformed tradition. And the first one is this. I stopped and showed it to you in Raymond's statement. The first issue that gets debated among them is, does regeneration precede faith? And uh, I'm seeing I'm catching opinions already in here. All right. Now, let, let me just lay this out. I'll be as objective as I can here. Most but not all Reformed theologians teach that regeneration precedes faith. This discussion might lightly be dismissed as inconsequential since we're discussing events that occur for all practical purposes simultaneously. However, at least some reformed theologians view regeneration and faith as chronologically sequential. This produces a serious problem. Now, when I say chronologically sequential, you understand what I mean is that one follows the other in a time sequence. All right. Uh, good morning sir. Uh, I have you marked. We um, we started with, um, what's the word I want, corporal's uh, guard okay now uh, and this does create a serious problem and notice my citations and this is going to look crazy but in D and I think in e yes uh, in yes in D and in E I'm going to make reference to the same document under two different types that's because it was published and then republished under another title and some of you have probably seen it have any of you seen a copy of the reformation study bible or the new geneva study bible okay and when i when i got to studying and preparing to teach soteriology for the first time 12 years ago or so i went out and i bought Robert Raymond's Systematic Theology, so I would have the latest dress of Reformed theology uh, current, and I went out and I bought the New Geneva Study Bible. R.C. Sproul is the editor of it. And I don't remember if it was first done as the Reformation Study Bible and then was published as New Geneva. It runs in my mind it was first New Geneva and now it's Reformation, but whatever. When you see, I'm talking about the same thing when, when you use those two titles. Uh, It articulates the problem, and notice what it says. This is, uh, uh, I don't, it's okay, I've got the page on it. I don't have it what passage of scripture the note is, but it states, infants can be born again, although the faith that they exercise cannot be as visible as that of adults. So a questioner, now this, This uh, comes from my friend, George Zeller, out in uh, Middletown, Connecticut, and he got in on some correspondence. A questioner wrote to Sproul about that and asked about this issue of regeneration. uh, Yes, regeneration preceding faith. And a man by the name of Vorheis, who was a research assistant or some staff assistant to Sproul, uh, wrote back January 1st, 2000, and made the following statement. When the New Geneva Study Bible speaks in the notes of John 3 of infants being born again, it is speaking of the work of of the quickening God does in them which inclines their will to Him. In Protestantism, regeneration always precedes faith. That's a pretty broad statement. Regeneration always precedes faith, and if God quickens them, the person will surely come. Often regeneration and our subsequent faith happen apparently simultaneously but logically regeneration must precede faith. Now watch the next statement. An infant's faith may not come until years after God has worked by his Holy Spirit to regenerate him or her. That is not my statement. That's the statement of the reformed theologian on our school staff. So you can have, will you pardon me now, I'm going to parody. But so what you can have is these regenerated sinners running around until they get saved. That is their statement. Now, Zeller goes on to say, according to this teaching, a child can be born again or regenerated as an infant and not come to Christ to The faith in Christ until years later. This may or may not have been the teaching of the reformers, (laughs) but it's certainly not the teaching of the Word of God. Now, Reformed theology faces two problems at this point. Reformed theology posits infant regeneration. We know that children can be saved. And in Matthew 18 6, Jesus talked about these little ones that believe in me. You remember that? Remember that statement? All right. However, the salvation of, the in, of children, the salvation of those who die in infancy is a different matter than regeneration before faith, which rule holds. It seems that the Reformed theologian's biggest mistake is to separate regeneration and faith in a time sequence. Yes, sir. No, I'm, I'm just affirming that. All right? There's no doubt that children can come in Christ to save. Yeah, children. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I'm saying that the salvation of children and the salvation of those who die in infancy is a, even either of those is a different matter than regeneration, preceding faith. Okay? And children get into it because Sproul brought it into the discussion. Okay. Now, yes, sir. All right, I'm gonna tell you, I don't, and I'm getting ready to come to some scripture here. I don't believe the scripture teaches, nor do I believe no, I it justifies regeneration preceding faith. And this is a good example of starting with a faulty premise and coming to a wrong conclusion. That's my that's my sense of it. Now, turn to John 1, will you please? And I'm, this, this does not have to get deep. This does not have to get exegetical. This is not as complicated as two prophecies in Isaiah 7, 14 and 16, as we were looking at in Isaiah class yesterday. This, this to me, is on the face of it. And this is scripture that whether it's Sunday School or Awana or where, most of you had memorized for you ever hit the Bible. John 1, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Nate, read, well, you, yeah, you have your Bible open. Read the first phrase of John 1, 13. Can you please? Many has received Him, and then gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. And your phrase was? When were they born? When they believed. And when did regeneration occur? At faith. At faith. Right? Go with me. Go with me to John 3. Is regeneration simultaneous with faith? Absolutely. The reformed position is that regeneration. And I'll I'll let, let, let's get John three and I'll finish making my point and then I'll come back and, in fairness to them, let you hear what they say. Uh, let's start in. Let's well let's start in. Um, I guess we better start with John 3 and verse 8. The wind blows where it lists, and you hear the sound thereof. can't tell whence it comes, whether it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. And then you get into the 14, 15, and 16 passage. Uh, Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 14, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life it is believing that brings life Yes ma'am if you if you listen you take John 1 John 3 Titus 3 Take the new birth passages in the New Testament. It is the impartation of new life. I cannot answer that question for you. (laughs) I have not engaged one of them and asked that question. All right. So I... I'm not going to speculate on what I don't know, and I don't know how one of them would answer that. Here is the reformed view of regeneration. Building off total depravity, that man is dead in trespasses and sin, he is incapable of turning to God. Everything that I have read that anybody who is reformed that says about total depravity, I'm in full agreement with until we come to one point. And that is the point of the remedy. Is the sinner dead in trespasses and sin? Ephesians 2. Is there any that seeks after God? Romans 3. Is there any that understands? So man is totally depraved, correct? The next thing in which we find ourselves in perfect agreement is that man is depraved and in himself neither is inclined to nor capable of coming to God. Reformed theology Says God has to quicken him and impart that new life before he will come to Christ. I say, right problem, wrong solution. Right problem, total depravity. Right solution, conviction, call, sanctification of the Spirit. When he, that is the Spirit, has come, he will convict the world, he will reprove the world sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they believe not on me of righteousness because i go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged can a lost person i don't care how many of you were saved before 10 can your hands any of you saved before 10 all right <clears throat> i don't know where it happened how it happened i don't know what the circumstances were anything else But the Spirit of God had to show you you were a sinner and convince you to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 12. I know we've been over this scripture before. This is important enough. I Repetition's the mother of learning. And I want to make sure you got it. So let's take the time to turn there again. Can we please? 1 Corinthians. Is it 12? Is it 11? I think it's 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. (coughs) Verse 3. And by the way, Paul is talking about their wife in idolatry before they came to Christ. Notice in verse 2. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man, speaking by the Spirit of God, calls Jesus a curse. And watch the end of his statement. And no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Spirit. Now, is there a work of the Spirit of God absolutely necessary before anyone can put his or her faith in Christ and acknowledge Christ as Lord? Declarative, definitive, unequivocal, how else can I say it? Brother Herbert, can you think of another word to put in there? Oh. You can't. All right. Well, that's that's amazing. Uh, I I was uh, reading a church a church history paper, Baptist history paper yesterday, and I read about this up and coming Baptist historian. So I uh, <laughs> his name is Herbert V. So I uh, have you seen my have you seen my response to you? All right, fine. We got to have some. You just got to, and I'm glad you think you can, and I'm glad I think I can. <laughs> but anyway, and then, then the next, the next place, he had a plural instead of a possessive noun. So I told him that historians ought to use an the past. Anyway, I don't know. Um, but with the scripture is about as plain as it can get, isn't it? No man can say that Jesus is the Lord apart from the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus said, "Now we're going to go over this all again in a set of notes, but this is the crux here, and it's worth taking the time to drive this stake in the ground several times. But the Scripture makes it clear. The Spirit of God's got to do that convicting work. The idea of Charles G. Finney that man has in himself some ability to come to Christ. The Pelagian idea. uh, I read another paper here just not very long ago when somebody was talking about the Pelagians and did a nice job of analyzing what the theologian had to say about it. And and the idea that man has any ability in himself to cooperate with God, to cooperate with the grace of God, to come to Christ on his own, to naturally seek the Lord, is simply not justified by Scripture. And where we have alluded to Romans chapter three and Ephesians chapter two, we can go to Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We can go to Isaiah. Or to Psalm 14. We can go to passage after passage from one end of the Bible to the other. Isaiah 1. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot to the top of the head. Or is it the other way around? There's nothing in it but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. I mean... The Word of God just describes it. Uh, That section in Romans 3, uh, you know, uh, their feet run swiftly to do mischief. Uh, Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. The poison of ass is under their lips. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Man is totally depraved. He is a sinner. And Scripture is clear in himself. He cannot, nor will he. We are enemies. Not only are we alienated from God, Colossians one says, we are enemies in our mind by wicked work. We are neither able nor inclined to come to Christ on our own, to seek God on our own. No man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. And so with with the strongest of the strong Reformed theologians. I am in full and hearty agreement with them on their description of, of total depravity. And there are those who want to modify Calvinism, and I call myself a modified Calvinist, but they want to modify Calvinism by saying man is depraved, he's totally depraved, but, he, but uh, I believe in total depravity, but I don't believe in total inability. I, I think my Bible talks about total inability. I, I just, I just there, There's no indication we have any inability or any ability in ourselves to come to Christ. It's got to be the work of the Spirit of God. But let's then get the remedy right. It is conviction. It is the Spirit of God doing that work. Let's take a look at one more. Let's take a look at one more term and let's get it in 1 Peter. Shall we just real quick here? In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. It only shows up a couple of times in the scripture. I didn't know we were going to spend this much time with it, but I don't resent a second of it. Second or 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Notice how Peter says it here. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. By the way, just as a little sidelight, as if it's unimportant. Isn't it interesting how Peter brings the entire Trinity into your salvation? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, through the sanctification of the Spirit, and when that sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit takes place, we are drawn to the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So you've got that term that Peter uses. Paul will use it in Second Thessalonians. We'll see it later where he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. And again, it is a term for the Spirit doing His work to draw a sinner. So we've got to have both sides of it. But I believe our Reformed theologian friends make a mistake. And listen, again, we are talking about a discussion in this case among people who are believers. And we are coming at scripture from different theological systems, but we do know the Lord. And let's keep that in mind. But at the same time, let's keep in mind. We ought to be right with our terminology. And regeneration and the new birth is a wonderful truth, and we're going to spend time with it. But let's put it where the Bible puts it. All right. Do I need to duck? Am I going to have stuff flying at me? Or are are we in good shape here? Other questions? I'm going to make it I'm going to cite a friend of mine. he's one of the closest friends I have in the ministry uh, with whom I disagree about this and I'll give you his statement let's see and again I'll let I'll let him speak for himself. What he tells me is I'm using the term in a theological sense not in a biblical sense and I my, and I've said this to him in a, in a personal conversation I think we're better off to let our theological terms, be used in a biblical sense. I have no idea what they would say. And of course, I am pretty confident they're going to tell you that this is all in theory, and they don't know. You know, they can't see the marks of regeneration the person tell that person professes. For. Okay. Now, then there is another question, and by the way, it's right here. It's H. For the KC. right here, I make him way that is my is my statement from my friend. I have a Baptist friend who declares himself a five point Calvinist. By the way, that guy is a soul winner. He's uh, he is off for three weeks in the Philippines right now, They're working with national pastors and uh, and. Uh, Just, just a terrific guy. Besides the fact he's a losing buddy, so I, I, I've drawn to him on several accounts, and he is nobody's dummy. If he if he wants to read early church history, if he wants if he wants to read Eusebius or somebody like that, he'll read him in the original. He is, he is a brilliant, brilliant guy. Okay, <laughs> but he declares himself a five point Calvinist. He takes a different view on the issue. He uses regeneration in what he calls theological, not biblical sense, and applies it to the pre conversion work of the Spirit in a sinner's heart. He would also use the term regeneration in its biblical sense to speak of the Spirit's impartation of new life to one who believes on Christ. So, and he's, we believe, in a very civil conversation, he's twice that. Okay? <laughs> All I can do there is represent what I know a guy believes. Okay, good. All right, now, then there is another question. Not only, folks, does regeneration precede faith, but then the next issue is does repentance precede faith? John Calvin taught that faith precedes repentance, while Beza and his followers reversed the order. And this almost, we could say, what is the argument? Paul said in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, you remember? Let's not assume that you remember. Let's get it. Acts the 20th chapter. And verse 21, as he's bidding farewell to the elders at Miletus, he says, I kept back, verse 20, nothing that was profitable but it taught, showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul put repentance ahead of faith there, Right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. I think I'm a little bit ahead of my story in the notes, but we'll get it. That's next thing down, so we're good. Uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And let's notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Right? Book would help. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And he's talking about the testimony of the Thessalonian believers. And he says, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols. Now does that at least kind of intimate that faith precedes repentance? They turned to God from idols, served the living and true God. All right, now, uh, the importance of this is that for Calvin, and it becomes important later. Watch little b. The basis of a believer's assurance of salvation is the finished work of Christ. While for Beza, with faith preceding repentance, the ground of assurance is the believer's perseverance in the Christian life after his conversion. We must approach this part of the Ordo Salutis with caution. Regeneration and faith are simultaneous in Scripture. And I'm I'm just going to make that statement. I hope you agree with me. I hope I've proven the point in John 3 and John 1. Repentance and faith are simultaneous. and I've cited both of these passages. It should be noted that Paul puts repentance before faith in Acts, and he intimates that faith precedes repentance in 1 Thessalonians. The two occur, apparently occur, so closely and simultaneously, that there is really no way to separate them. Although Calvin's followers made a big point of the issue, it does not appear to be that big of a matter in Scripture. When we deal with perseverance and eternal security, we will argue from Scripture that the ground of a believer's assurance is the finished work of Christ. evidenced by his perseverance, but the ground of it is the finished work of Christ. Yes, ma'am. Mm -hmm. Will you allow us to work our way further into this? I do not want to put the question off. I want to get working through the whole thing of justification, regeneration, faith. And I think when we've got a little more behind us, we can address it more. It's been a thing with Reformed theology, For a long time, for many years, more or less in the background, John MacArthur popularized it again in the late 80s, and it's it's gotten legs all over again. But uh, what does a person have to know? What kind of a decision do you make when you put your faith in Christ? And I've I've in fact I know I've got a section in the notes where I'm going to argue. I'll I'll give you my short answer right now. MacArthur's the reformed position is generally, you have to, when you when you trust Christ, you have to receive Christ as Savior and acknowledge Him as Lord at the same time. My argument is going to be, I don't think most people when they come to Christ understand certainly the full implications of Christ's Lordship. That they are, that He is God, that He paid the penalty for their sin, that they must come in the communion and fellowship with Him and come in repentance, I think the Lordship of Christ is inherent in that. Okay. But I'm going to argue and I'm going to walk you through a series of passages in the book of Romans that the very act of saving faith is itself an act of obedience to God. And when a person... Genuinely, comes to Christ, comes to God through Christ, let's put it that way, in saving faith, he may not understand all of the implications of Lordship of Christ, but it will not be a big deal to first obey the Lord in baptism. And then, the steps of obedience of the Christian life should, in the process of sanctification, and if we understand saving faith and if we've got that down uh, I, I'll give you two verses you can look at real quick Romans chapter 1 the first four verses where Paul received grace and apostleship for, for obedience to the faith among all nations and then you go to Romans 16 25 and 26 his benediction at the end of the book and he puts a he's got bookends on either end of the book, And this gospel is proclaimed by the commandment of the everlasting God to all nations for the obedience of faith. And in Romans 1, verse 4, he seems to open the book with that language. In Romans 16, in his benediction, he closes it with that language. And the whole issue of obedience, I don't want to get ahead of my story, but the whole issue of obedience in the book of Romans, the sinner's disobedient. We have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which we were delivered. There's a lot about obedience in the Book of Romans. Okay, that's the short answer. Okay, good. These are these are all the issues that accompany the matter of of uh, materiality. All right. Yes, sir. They're just no other way to say it. Yes, sir. And listen, listen. In reaction, we, you could do a whole history of Christian doctrine on soteriology in the last 30 years because MacArthur came out I'm convinced there are places where MacArthur overstated his case in the Gospel according to that the book started. And a lot of people believe that he, in faith works and a couple of his later books, moderated his position, brought it back into a more biblical perspective. There was rightly a reaction against MacArthur. But there were a bunch of guys who reacted against him, the Grace Evangelical Society, and I can't tell you who all is in that thing anymore. But um, Zane Hodges was one of them, and I think Zane Hodges is with the Lord now. But um, but a bunch of those guys overreacted the other way, and there was there was a professor at Florida Bible College uh, who. Uh, candy I can't tell you what his name was I had his book many years ago and he he wanted to water down the issue of repentance and Curtis Hudson when he was the editor of the Sword of the Lord uh, wrote on on repentance and went the other the other way if you will just wait excuse me oh if you will just wait for a week or two we've got a whole section on repentance yes sir we're going we're going to deal with it and and i am convinced if you do not preach repentance and if you do not preach judgment you have not preached god and we have not gotten to it in Isaiah, although my students have done an outline. Let me give you just one perfect textbook example. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. Can't get a greater gospel invitation. By myself. The word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall say. And if I remember right, somebody, didn't somebody talk about that one day and say something like, being found in fashion as a man, he became; he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, of things in earth, and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And I think that guy gave us a commentary on Isaiah 45.23. follow me? If you do not preach repentance, you do not preach the gospel. Now has the gospel been imperfectly preached and people been saved? Yes. No question about it. God by His Holy Spirit takes the word and uses the word, but by the same token in our writing, in our preaching, in our soul winning, we need to get it right. Okay. now so repentance and faith so closely and simultaneously they occur that there's no way to separate them and then <clears throat> and then justification and faith are also simultaneous when are people declared righteous that he might be just and the justifier of him that does what believes in Jesus Romans chapter 3 justification Simultaneous. simultaneously. The point of this folks is this, to get ahead of it. And I'm going to give you my own order of salutis in a minute. In our minds, we've got to lay it out in logical fashion, in orderly fashion. We've got to have a means by which we approach it. Okay? We've got to be able to did I just use the phrase sort it out? If I didn't, now I did. And we've got to do that. And we can see the logic, we can see the reasoning, and we have to let the scriptural authority also be very clear that we are dealing with things that occur simultaneously. The moment somebody puts his or her faith in Christ, I mean, it just happens. It just happens. That's that's the great thing to get a hold of. All right. So the whole point of this is that when we deal with biblical issues surrounding a person's salvation, it is a mistake to separate them in time. God planned salvation in eternity past. We know that. We clearly understand. Well, all right. We also know that glorification and heaven await the believer in the future. Right? And there is the process of living for the Lord today. Right? The whole Christian life. So we are dealing with past, present, and future. And we can put some things in that chronological grid. When it comes to the act of saving faith, that's instantaneous. Right? So, when we speak of the events surrounding a person's coming to Christ, in time. The order is logical, not chronological. So with that in mind, I think there's a better more biblical way of approaching the order of salvation. This table generally follows Paul's order in Romans 8. Brother Chip, you made a comment about that the other day. And let me give you let me give you some history of this. I have to tell you that the right-hand column over here is not original with me, and some of you may have rubbed shoulders with a guy. He he did at Pillsbury what Dr. Dave Saxon does with doctrine on the undergrad level here at Maranatha. He was he was good. He he was an excellent teacher and he was a good theologian. Did any of you ever? He he was involved with. Uh, Oh, I can't think of the name of uh, Baptist Admissions Ministry to Israel. But have any of you ever heard the name Joel Kettenring? He's been around the country in missions conferences and whatever. His wife, little gal that had a great big soprano voice. But anyway, Joel Kettenring was my Bible teacher at Pillsbury. And believe it or not, in a college Bible class, he worked through a little bit of this Ordo And I don't think we, I know we didn't have it fleshed out like I did. Like I've got it here. I've done some work with it. But Joel Kettenring, Joel Kettenring, I think gave us the two right-hand columns. And watch it. Before we are saved, I'm starting on the far right. Before we believe, when we believe, after we believe. Over here, one of these, before we believe. Largely goes to why we are saved. When we believe largely goes to how we are saved. And after we believe largely goes to what we receive when we're saved. Okay? Now, I think we are on safe biblical ground in saying that before we are saved, there are at least these things that happen. Election, foreknowledge, predestination, and the calling of the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? When we are saved, when we believe, at least these things happen. Regeneration, conversion. When I talk about conversion, I'm, and this is a common way that, that theologians do it, they put repentance and faith together; it cannot be separated. The whole thing is the convict is the conversion experience, justification, union with Christ. Then, after we believe, before we get to glory, sanctification is an ongoing process. We receive the adoption. And will receive the full benefits of it in eternity future. Preservation. Perseverance, security, you can put all of that under that ninth word. And ultimately, glorification. Now, does that table make sense? It did to me, and it does to me. Not perfect, I'm sure. Yes, ma'am. It is we are taught It is all when we believe, and simply because in a list you can't. You know, if I could make one word out of it. You know, well, and then you've got to throw justification in. there. Yep. yep. And then, then the mystery of mysteries. Beautiful truth, mighty truth. Not. I don't know that it can be comprehended and certainly not dealt with. Union with God. We are at once dead with Him and alive. How we can be joined. I don't think I've got it in the notes. Let me just throw this out. There was a, I can't even remember the date now. I looked it up one time. I think we're talking 17. He may have been 18. an old preacher in England. My sense is he was an Anglican, a, probably a Puritan. His name was Roland Hill. In his late years, he was invited one Sunday to preach in a church as a guest. He we went. He we preached. Service was dismissed, and the building emptied out. And the sexton was putting out the lights and locking the place up. And he thought he was alone in the building. and didn't realize he was still in the building. And finally, Roland Hill in the darkened, you can see this almost in a cathedral-type building, can't you? Walking down the center aisle. And the old boy was singing. I don't know the music. You're glad I don't. But he was singing these words. When I'm to die, receive me, I'll cry. For Jesus has loved me, I cannot tell why. But this I can find. We too are so joined, He'll not be in heaven to me. That." Captures a bunch of that union with Christ. Okay, now we have, oh, we've got 15 minutes. No, no, we've got 10 minutes. Twenty. Oh, yeah, we go to 10 after. All right, good. All right. We're in good shape. Questions? Comments? Because now we start into And we can solve that. You know what? I wouldn't. I wouldn't even think. To solve it. I mean, everybody has a right to. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Uh, so we're all set. We're all ready to go. Okay, let's let's at least introduce the issue of election and these three terms election foreknowledge and predestination this is <laughs> is this an understatement or what election predestination has been one of the most controversial of all christian doctrines it's been debated and argued about for centuries we will be well advised to approach this subject with considerable humility Thank you, Doctor. Now let's talk about the major views of election. And I can't remember who was it more than one of you. I know I have read a review. Uh, who of you reviewed Thiessen? A couple of you, three of you did. All right. So you have you have worked through Thiessen's approach to this pretty well. All right. Uh, the, the, the major views. Our first, the issue of foresight election. This view holds that God, through his foreknowledge, knew who would trust Christ and therefore chose them or elected them. I'm quoting in here, by election we mean that sovereign act of God in grace, whereby he chose in Christ Jesus for salvation all those whom he foreknew would accept him. This is the election in its redemptive aspect. and That's Thyssen that's and his famous statement. Now, Thiessen admits the problem with this view in justifying his position. He says, although we are nowhere told what it is in the foreknowledge of God that determines his choice, the repeated teaching of scripture that man is responsible for accepting or rejecting salvation, necessitates our postulating that it is man's reaction to the revelation God has made of himself that is the basis of his election. There's no question that the scripture makes it clear that man's responsible for his own choice. I'm not going to agree with him on the rest of it. Yes, sir. Thyssen would say the first, you have described with your second statement my understanding of unconditional Yes. He is saying that God looked down, foresaw who would receive Christ, and therefore they are the elect. That is, that is Thyssen's view. Right? <clears throat> We disagree with Reformed theologians when they go beyond the statements of Scripture and make suppositions. And we have done a fair amount of that earlier this morning in talking about regeneration preceding faith. We must point out that Thesson does the same thing here. He has no basis for making his statement, no scriptural basis and he says so. Uh, what it is in the foreknowledge of God that determines his choice. The repeated teaching of Scripture that man is responsible for accepting, rejecting, necessitates our postulating that it is man's reaction uh, that is the basis of God's election. That's what you don't have Scripture for. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Chapter 1, we read that. <clears throat> but the fact that it would be man's choice that determines God's elective work. Is the thing that reason um, does not have scripture to support. And this is one of the places where we must take the statements about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility as parallel to intention, accept them by faith, and not try to resolve what scripture leaves unresolved. For centuries, theologians have wrestled with the apparent inconsistency between divine predestination and human freedom. That is the Lord Erickson's statement. I believe that the apparent inconsistency exists because of the limitations of man's finite time. I'm sure all of you at one time or another have spent at least a little time trying to comprehend timelessness, Absolutely, completely impossible for these minds of ours to think outside time. Oh, it is yes, and, and, you know. And I, I look forward. I say it right, to get to heaven, and the first 24 hours, as if there will be 24 hours in heaven. But the first day with us in me can't even imagine. That's going to be like. But anyway, you know, to get out of the realm of time and to get out of the realm of space, completely impossible. We are finite and an infinite God, who we can only say in terms of time, always was, always will be, had no beginning, has no end, has created time, put us in it, and chosen to deal with us in the best thing we can do is reconcile ourselves to that, to that setting. So, how, how do you get? Purpose of God into the time That's where we start to dress up. Then you get the philosophies that either do or be for the let that run to the screen. We run to we have talked a little bit about Gregory How many of you have had Dr. problem? I assume he has dealt with open theism And that is something we deal with here, that is opinionism run among but uh, at any rate that's that's the issue with which we deal now any other questions comments corporate election and this view holds on the basis of Ephesians 1: 4 that those who are in Christ that is saved are elected. The reasoning goes that Christ is the elect one, and all who are in him are therefore elect. Let's take a quick look at this chapter. And the statement is in Ephesians 1 and verse 4, very simply, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so the reason, as I said, the reasoning is all that are in Christ are therefore elect. Karl Barth, who was a really kind of the father of neo Orthodox theology, Advocated this position. He taught that election is primarily election in Christ, then election of the community, and finally the election of individuals. Actually, all are elect in Christ, the unbelievers do not yet know that. That is why Barth's doctrine of election caused him to be accused of universalism. And I don't think you can call Barth an evangelical. When I was in seminary, Neo-Orthodoxy was in its heyday. Paul Tillich was still alive. He was maybe the last of the Neo-Orthodox theologians. And uh, it's not that Neo Orthodoxy has completely gone away. It is not the front burner issue that it was. So I have I need to go back and read uh, some more in Bart. I've read very, very little in him. But uh, there's also an evangelical form of this position. And it views election as the choosing of the group, the church in Christ, but not individuals until after they become members of the group by faith. And uh, this, is, this is Dave Burgraff uh, stating this position. Uh, in this form, there is no suggestion of universalism, Though so the idea of corporate election is common to both, <clears throat> we cannot speak of individuals being elected before the foundation of the world, but only of the church being elected, so elected in Christ. Ephesians 1 4. Now, I do not know anybody who is actively teaching today or writing today who holds that. But I have a very good friend who is now retired who did teach, who does hold it. If any of you have been around any of the folks that were at Calvary Baptist Seminary in Lensdale, Pennsylvania, Gordon Lovick, who was professor there for a number of years, holds that that position. And um, it is not by any means a majority position It is not an unorthodox position. Go ahead, Yes. Yes. As Christ is elect, church is elect, then those who are in Christ are the elect. I think it is, as all of these are, one attempt or another to reconcile the whole sovereignty, free will, tension. And by the way, I, if I use the word debate, make sure that I use it when I'm talking about two people who are at odds, Make sure that I don't use it about the problem because, regardless of whether you've got Arminians and Calvinists fighting each other or Erasmus and Luther writing each other up over it, it is a tension. Scripture makes statements that we have a hard time resolving and I think I think I am much fairer to speak of it as the sovereignty, free will, tension. And then if we've got two people going at it over the battle, then we can talk about their debate. Okay? You know what? I can answer that. I'm not trying to be trite, I'm not trying to be cavalier. But at the end of a great section on the sovereignty of God, he winds up and says, Oh, the depths of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and His ways back There's his answer, and that's not right. I mean, that's this is this is nine, ten, and eleven vessels of wrath fitted for destruction. Has mercy on whom he will have mercy. It's the whole sovereignty passage in the book of Romans. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past. Who hath known him? Who hath been his It's based on man's action rather than God's instigation. Yes, ma'am. Do me a favor. And I, I'm not I'm not putting you off here. There's a whole bunch of questions. But your question is very well placed. Your question is very well put. We're going to spend a whole section on foreknowledge, okay? And when I've got you thoroughly confused after we looked through that section, then ask your question and I'll do my best to, okay? Because the issue of what does foreknowledge mean? Let me just say this. Does foreknowledge mean God chose, or does foreknowledge mean God knew, and that's all. There is a graduate of this college with a master's degree from this graduate school who has an MDiv from Calvary Baptist Seminary in Lansdale, Pennsylvania, who is as we speak writing a PhD dissertation on that very Oh, I'm sorry, but uh, that, that, that is the very simple Ink has been spilled, at least enough to fill Okay, folks, we're having to try to start an individual election this morning. Uh, we have our work cut out for us Wednesday morning. What? <laughs> yeah, there's only two points under it. Who knows? All right. Thank you, folks. Have a great weekend. Will you please?